This is the Amazing Education Podcast. Powered by the Ames Community School District, I'm your host, Eric Smith. On today's episode, we are joined by Nina Lorimer Easley of True Potential Education. As a leader in the state on dyslexia, we are going to talk about common myths associated with dyslexia and how understanding it can inform best practices for all students. All right, Nina, thank you for being on this episode of the Amazing Education Podcast. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Yeah, I am really excited about this topic. I know it is a very popular topic in our district, but I think there are, are a lot of things that all teachers and our broader community, they can learn about dyslexia. Absolutely. And so... I'm excited that you agreed to come on, and we're going to dive right in. Uh, let's go for it. All right. So I think we have to start easy, and I think we need to talk <laughs> about really, like, what is dyslexia? Now, you're an expert in this. <laughs> right? Yes. So what is dyslexia? Yeah. Dyslexia is a, a language-based learning disability. So that's the kind of the first main element you need to know, that it's language-based not visual, things like that. It is language-based. It's typically characterized by a weakness in the phonological component of language, and it's neurobiological. So what that means, big words, but what (laughs) neurobiological piece means is it's actually a difference in the way the brain is wired and the way the brain processes information. Okay. And so... um, it's, it can be seen, you know, you can see it on fMRIs, there's lots of documentation, there's hundreds and hundreds of scientific studies about how the brain reads mm-hmm. and how the brain can be inhibited from reading. And okay. so all of those studies, we know a lot about dyslexia and the impact it has. Okay. So, and when we say that it impacts the phonological component, that's the sounds. Our language is based on the sounds, right? First we have to learn the sounds mm-hmm. and then the symbols. And so to put it very simply, that piece can get a little disrupted and, okay. and that is dyslexia. So I saw some statistics that it was indicated that many people thought it is a visual problem. Yes. And so is that accurate? One. Let <laughs> me answer that one first. So it is not accurate. We do. That's one of the common myths of dyslexia. Okay. It really doesn't have anything to do with vision whatsoever. Okay. There are people, of course, can have vision issues yeah. that could co-occur with dyslexia. Mm-hmm. Um, but but the you can you can have 20/20 vision. You can be nearly blind and still have dyslexia. So it is not related to vision. So let's talk through, so you brought up one myth, but let's talk about more. Are, are there more myths that are so, often associated with dyslexia? And I'm going to bring this up um, coming up later in the podcast as well, but I think I have a personal connection to this. So you and I have met um, yeah. outside of this podcast, yeah. and, and that was the reason why I invited you on. And so I have a personal interest in this as well, but I think that there is a chance that, as far as understanding dyslexia that that can allow for some additional best practices for teachers to to happen and actually honestly at home as as well and so i kind of want to frame a lot of this episode really around how can what we talk about today how can that knowledge base really help could be struggling readers could be students with dyslexia but really all students as well sure um so let's talk about what some other myths are sure so some of the most common ones that we hear are, are, the, are 
you know, that kind of come across the desk yeah. are, number one, that dyslexia is reversals, B's and D's backwards, right? We hear yeah. that a lot. And I think that's where a lot of the vision piece, the, the, the myth of vision comes from. So reversals are one of the characteristics of mm -hmm. dyslexia. Some people struggle with reversals. Some people with dyslexia don't struggle with reversals. Um, but it's such a small piece of the puzzle that okay. sometimes I think we think, well, if it's just, you know, you confuse your B's and D's, what's the big deal? Yeah. And I think that's why it gets undervalued a lot of times when, when we kind of come with that stereotypical approach to dyslexia. So that's one of them. Um, another one, then probably a bigger one, is that dyslexia is rare. A lot of people think that dyslexia is very, very rare. In fact, it is not. Okay. <laughs> um, there's a significant percentage of our population, and depending on whose data you're looking at and what studies and who you want to talk to, anywhere from 7 to 17%. Um, and the reason that there's such a spread in there is because mild dyslexia often goes un undetected. Sure. Um, a, a person with mild dyslexia might be an adult who is just absolutely dependent on spell check but was never identified. And so those numbers, um, we could argue all day about where the numbers are, but it is not rare. There is a significant number of kiddos in every, there's kiddos in every classroom Mm -hmm. who have dyslexia. And so I think that myth that it's rare is probably one of the one of the worst ones because okay. it gets overlooked. Sure. So with dyslexia, instruction can play a huge component as far as overcoming it. And so so you talked about, you know, kiddos with dyslexia, but tell me if I'm accurate or or push back, but if you have dyslexia, like that, that will stay with you your entire life. But with instruction, you can overcome it. Yeah. Or you can, yes. give me some better words, please. <laughs> yep, absolutely. Okay. So I think this goes to a lot, a lot of people want to know, can we cure dyslexia? Okay. Okay. If you are, it's neurologically based. It mm -hmm. is the way your brain is processing information. Um, whether, you know, some people will talk about right hemisphere, left hemisphere, whatever it is, it's the way you process information. Yeah. You're going to cure the way that you process information and we don't want to we don't want to necessarily change that because the way you process each one of us processes information makes yeah. us who we are right gives correct. us our strengths yep. i mean you know there's great stuff there what we can do is remediate that phonological language piece okay. and that's what we need to do to help kiddos and adults mm -hmm. but our focus of course usually is on kiddos yep. um to be successful in school and and the reason we want to do that is because that whole social emotional piece if if that sound symbol element is difficult then it's really tough to come through confidence and have school or come through confidence come through school and have confidence yeah, yeah. and and feel like you know I'm really successful mm -hmm. and so that's where we want to jump in early get the instruction we need and keep that that social emotional factor from yeah. really playing out so I want to come back to that here, here in a second, sure. but I have, have um, really a note here as far as with instruction, is it changing our brain or, or our student's brain? Yeah. Yep. When So what we're doing is when we're using a, a multi-sensory explicit method, methodology mm -hmm. of instruction, what we're doing is giving the brain enough different input that we're kind of forcing the brain to utilize the areas that are the most efficient for processing language. If you say, can, can somebody with dyslexia read? Absolutely, they can read. Yeah. But are they doing it efficiently? Are they going to end up down the road with good comprehension, all of those really minuscule pieces and parts yeah and so what we want to do when we're instructing appropriately we want to make sure that we are 
basically forcing the brain to truly engage and use the efficient areas of the brain um, that sets us up for success down the road. We talk about that a lot that, you know, f- especially from a parent perspective, yeah. our goal is the launch. <laughs> right. <laughs> right? Yep. We want a successful kiddo who can go out into the world, read, be fully functional, write, do what they need to do. And so sometimes, you know, what we're doing in first grade, we don't want to get stuck on what we're doing in first grade because what we need to keep an eye on is what's it going to take to get to the end to be successful. Yeah. So. So I want to take an opportunity, and I don't know that we have to, um, we can hit this quick, but there's dyslexia, Mm -hmm. there's dysnomia, there's dysgraphia. So can you talk briefly about the difference between the three? Because sometimes we see all three. Sure. Absolutely. So um, dyslexia is mm-hmm. that kind of based in that phonological language piece. Um, dysnomia, word recall, is kind of an informal way to think of that. Being okay. able to come up with the word that you need when you need it. It used to be called tip of the tongue syndrome. Oh. Um, and the thing about dysnomia is it's not coming up with words like if I say, you know, who was the president of France in 1872. That's not what I'm talking about, coming up with a word. Yeah. I'm talking about what are you holding in your hand. It's a, um, oh, that thing you write with, it's a, uh, oh, it's a pen. It's that. Yeah. Right? And so common everyday words that aren't being sorted efficiently neurologically, and so coming up with them is hard. Yeah. Um, and then uh, dysgraphia is then the, the written piece of language. And it's very, very interesting because it's not an, an OT, it's not an occupational therapy piece. We have kids with horrible dysgraphia who can't write letters mm-hmm. but are amazing artists. Yeah. And oh, so it, again, is still that language piece, mm-hmm. but it's that orthographic mapping of what's the sound and the letter and then writing it. And the fact of the matter is, writing is really, really complex. Yeah. And so if that whole process is not happening automatically, writing is the bottom rung of the ladder. <laughs> and yeah. so by the time I get to it, I can't remember what letter I wanted to write, let alone what it looks like. Right. And should it touch the line? Should it go halfway up? How tall should it be? Should it dip down below? All that stuff is just too much information. There is a lot there. There's a ton there. It's very, very yeah. complex. Wow. Yeah. So when you and I talked over the summer, um, one of the things that really stuck with me, and we were talking about um, a student going into first grade, and you had said that confidence in school was really the number one thing that we needed to focus on. And so, you know, as a parent, you know, I put my parent hat on. (laughs) I just want the, you know, he's got to do it. got to figure it out. We, you know, and you were like, pump the brakes. You know, we want students to be confident in school because once that goes away, yep. it's tough to get back. Yeah. And so you had talked to me about, you know, it's okay if, you know, a student with dyslexia has a partner to, to work on stuff with. And, you know, yep. talk, talk through that with me yeah. here again. It, it is. That's very much kind of where I come from this. And my person, you know, we've talked. I yes. have a personal story. Yeah. And um, just working with kids for a long time, that the confidence piece, when a little person feels like a failure, yeah. that is setting everybody up for problems for yeah. a very, very long time. There's smart people all over the place that can help a kiddo learn to read for years to come. Again, focused on the launch. If we break that kiddo in kindergarten and first grade and make them hate books and hate school and hate teachers and hate themselves, then we all have a problem that we are going to be dealing with the entire time they're in school. 
Whereas if we if we slow down and we give them, you know, the things they need. So yeah. if we're in first grade and, and reading is really tough and it's impacting how well we understand things, then accommodate that. Help that kiddo out. Now, yeah. we need to make sure that somebody is working on that, on those skills. Right. And that those skills are going to come along. Mm-hmm. But in the meantime, we need to help kids be successful in school. Um, I, this is where I really go to. We make lots and lots of assumptions. Okay. Right? If I'm working with a kiddo and we're having a great conversation and, and that kiddo seems to be excessively intelligent, I'm going to assume that they can understand all the instructions I'm giving them, yeah. that they can understand everything they're, they can read. Mm-hmm. But then when I'm not getting good stuff back from them, then I need to be careful. Why am I not getting good stuff back? I need sure. to not assume it's not that they're not trying hard, right. that they're not motivated, that they don't want to. No, I need to dig deeper than that. Those are my assumptions. And yeah. oftentimes that's what we kind of act on. And so we've got to get those assumptions out of the picture and help that kiddo, what really is hard for you, and how mm-hmm. can I help you be successful with that skill while we give you the tools you need in order to overcome that? But yeah. it does, it's not going to happen right now. If that's tough for that kiddo today, then we need to help him get today's homework done. Right, yeah. While we work on that language piece. Yeah. One of the um, other things that was really a takeaway from me, and I think this probably is along the lines of the, the dysnomia part, because a lot of times we see this together, is, you know, we can have a, a student where, you know, it, a teacher is asking a, a broad question and, you know, you have student over here, you know, willing to answer it, put their hand up. And so a student, say me, for example, um, you know, I'm thinking, 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 thinking. And, and as I'm thinking, we've answered, you know, that question and another question. And then suddenly it's like, oh, I got it. And, you know, I raise my hand and, and I have the answer. I could see, you know, on, on we don't want to see that as, as a bad behavior sure. because... Sure, because our knee-jerk reaction is pay attention. Yeah, correct, yeah. <laughs> pay attention. And the kiddo's like, I, I was paying attention. Or, yeah. yeah that's a, it's a very typical classroom scenario. Yeah. If you have a kiddo who is concentrating and, and taking the long way, if you will, like I'm trying to think of pen, right? <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to think of the answer. Oh, it's that, it's, it was the one, it was the, it was the time, it was the what's that word. And while a kiddo's going through that whole process, somebody without language issues pops their hand up, answers the yeah. question. And then, you know, our kiddo answers a question, and it's it's inappropriate, right. right? And so that's perceived. We're assuming. We're assuming you weren't paying attention. And so then we go into adult mode, and we say things like, why weren't you paying attention? Yes. Worse yet, that kiddo gets home, and mom says, what, what were you doing? Why were you not paying attention? What did you, why did you get in trouble today? Yeah. And what does that kiddo have to say? I don't know. Right? Yeah. And as parents, what do we do? We go, what do you mean you don't know? How can you not right, know? We're doing you were the same sitting thing. there in class. <laughs> you were sitting right there. How yeah. can you not know? Right? And it's it it's tough. Yeah. It is tough. But you know, I mean that but that that whole concept applies um, to parents as well. I mean, Absolutely. I have to pump the brakes as well at Absolutely. times, you know, when you start asking, you know, your your child questions, Hey, where did you put this? What 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 did you do with this? And you're like, Come on, let's you know, but yeah, relax. Like yeah. let's Right. And we're adults. I always tell, I always say we're adults. We add words. Yeah. Right? So when the words are hard, go to the pen. Mm-hmm. When I say, you know, where are your shoes? If I have to go, oh, oh, my shoes, they were, let's see, they, it was under the, you know, if I, if I have to do that, 
And as a mom, this is what I do to my mm-hmm. kids. I go, wear your shoes. I get no response. And I'm like, come on, wear your shoes. We yeah. got to go. We've got to get going. Yeah. And my kiddos are still like, shoes, wear. Yeah. Know, we start to dump more words mm-hmm. on. And we just exacerbate the problem. We don't mean to. Yeah. And, and we don't do it intentionally. But 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 we, we adult. <laughs> yeah. No, I know. And oftentimes, because we're making assumptions. We're assuming yeah. that you're not answering me when the process, when really I'm, I'm processing information. I need time to process yeah. information. So yeah. coming back into education and in sure. the classroom, you talked about how, you know, oftentimes students can go undiagnosed. Yep. And so in the education setting, we're not diagnosing students. Correct. And we can't diagnose students. Correct. And so whether a student, I, so I want to kind of delve into Having an understanding of dyslexia, how can that inform best practices in the classroom? Absolutely. Because we cannot diagnose. Um, some students are, are, are going to be diagnosed. Others are not. Correct. And you may have even some students who maybe struggle um, in some of these areas with reading who also still may not be diagnosed e- even if they wanted to. Sure. Um, so how can understanding or what are some best practices in uh, education. Absolutely. And I think maybe best practices for parents as well. Sure. Sure. Absolutely. One of the one of the best kind of guidelines that we talk about is um, many elements of language should develop naturally. And so when we notice delays or we notice these things not being naturally internalized, instead of saying, you know, oh, it'll come, or instead of being content to wait for it, mm-hmm. we need to stop and go, what exactly is the problem here? So for, for young kiddos, kiddos that can't rhyme, that, that aren't picking up rhyming, um, kiddos who struggle and struggle and struggle to learn to spell or write their name, yeah. kiddos who struggle for a long time to get the alphabet figured out. Um, for teachers, um, early teachers, you know, kids that are struggling with that sound symbol piece. I see the letter K, but I can't remember that it says K. You know, mm-hmm. um, there's lots of early warning signs like that when onset rhyme is really, really difficult. Yeah. Um, memory. So there's lots of things like that. And what like age that. range are we talking about oh, here? It's kindergarten. Kindergarten. Yeah. Okay. We want to start watching in kindergarten yeah. for those naturally developing language patterns. Mm-hmm. Now, again, back to the we can't diagnose piece. Yeah. So if I'm a kindergarten teacher and I've got a kiddo who say they wrote something and the letters that they wrote in no way correlate to what they're telling me it should say, yeah. right? There should be logical errors. So are they, spill- are they spelling phonetically? That's okay, that's developmental. Yeah. But if I was supposed to write the word fun and I wrote P-O-D, mm-hmm. right? Then as a teacher, I need to go, wait a minute. This kiddo still doesn't know what letter says. So yeah. what's going on here, right? Now, when I see that, do I look at that and go, oh my gosh, it's dyslexia? Yeah. No, because as a teacher, a diagnostic, it's a process, right? right? Yeah. It's, oh, like yeah. a f- it's, a, it's at least a full day of testing. It's mm-hmm. very, very complex. We're not looking for a diagnosis. We're looking for that recognition. This kiddo doesn't know what letter says F, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Yep. So we've got to figure out what else do they know? Yeah. Do they know what other letters say? Is it just F? Yeah. Is it all the vowels? Yep. Is it every consonant? And so we just have to take what we're seeing, look at it a different way, and use that information diagnostically as a teacher, okay. not to diagnose, yeah. but to inform instruction. Okay. Right. Yeah. That's really the key to it, yep. is see that weakness and then have the tools and the knowledge to instruct to see, is that weakness a thing? Yeah. 
Or is it is it just purely that, a weakness? We didn't get quite enough instruction the first time. We needed yep. a reteach of that. Because that's the thing to remember. Instruction mm-hmm. should make a difference. Yeah. Right? So if we teach this kiddo the sound of F every day for two weeks and he still can't do it, mm-hmm. That's a problem. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> right? right. If we're asking a kiddo what what sound does F make and we've never explicitly taught that, mm-hmm. that's our fault. Yeah. If we know we have taught it explicitly, then we got to look at that kiddo and go, why is this so hard for you, yep. kiddo? And what do we need to do different? Yeah. So. So let's dive into um, some instruction and talk about curriculum. Sure. Um, Orton Gillingham. Orton Gillingham. I'll let you take it over yep. from there. <laughs> Absolutely. So there's lots of different terminology you will hear. Orton-Gillingham is a very, very popular one. Structured literacy is another one that you will hear. Really, the difference between those two terms, Mm -hmm. I kind of want to outline that because people get confused. Okay. Orton-Gillingham comes from the research of Sam Orton and Anna Gillingham, Mm -hmm. right? It's very old research. It was established via stroke patients, figuring out how to um, stimulate areas of the brain that had been negatively impacted by stroke. Okay. Okay. That's how that research started. Oh, interesting. And so what happened there was they used the multisensory input. They're using all of the senses, which neurologically, anytime you get information from all of your senses at once... Mm it's gonna have a stronger impact. Think of what we call flashbulb memories. Okay. Those memories where you can go back and you can you you know exactly what song was playing and yep. what was the smell you smelled. It could be fear, it could be, you know, the first kiss, it could be all kinds of things. P- Pixar calls them core memories. So, there we go. There we go, right? <laughs> and so what we want to do is really utilize the senses. That's what Orton Gillingham is doing. Okay. And then the additional piece is that is the scope and sequence of instruction, which basically says I'm not going to hold you responsible for content until I've taught you how to attack that content. Okay. Okay? So those are the two big pieces. Now, structured literacy is all the same thing. Mm -hmm. What structured literacy doesn't mandate is that multisensory piece. Okay. Because we don't have a ton of science yet that takes that multisensory input and ties it specifically to reading. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yep. There's lots of science and lots of knowledge that multisensory input creates a stronger impression. We know that from science. We are just now working, and there's science going on right now. I believe that our Reading Research Center actually okay. has some science going on right now of t- finishing that bridge, take yep. that multisensory piece to reading. But because there's not a strong scientific piece, structured literacy doesn't mandate the multisensory piece. Orton Gillingham does. So either one is good. You can always add the multisensory piece. But you're looking at a variety of curriculum foundations, yep. I think, is a very popular yep. one here yep. in the district, yep. which We're is familiar awesome. With that. It's fabulous. There's lots of different curriculum that will serve um, the same purpose. Okay. There's um, foundations, really great reading, there's spire, there's and there's lots of different sure. curriculum. Yeah. They all come at a different cost. They all come with different training requirements. Yeah. You know, so just like any curriculum decision yeah. is gonna be made. Yep. What we're looking for is that explicit um, scope and sequence. Um, the multi-sensory piece, I, I'm a firm believer, and just because we don't have a white paper that says we have tons and tons of experience that says the multi-sensory piece is very valuable. Yeah. So the scope and sequence, the multi-sensory piece, and then um, support material so you're not holding the kids accountable for things they haven't been taught. Yeah. Yeah. This is great. So I don't know if you can believe this, but like time flies by I know, when right? you're on a podcast. <laughs> right? It I is know. crazy. I know. <laughs> um, so... I want to add something amazing to, to the tail end of this, and then I'm going to give you an opportunity as well. Sure. I have seen with 
explicit instruction, you know, phonics-based stuff, I've seen success in students. And just seeing the confidence in students who I know, you know, four months ago were really struggling with reading and now they're seeing growth areas, mm-hmm. it's absolutely amazing. It is. And it, it just makes my heart happy. <laughs> and so it, it's a long road and it can be a long road, but that confidence yeah. piece and just seeing progress, you know, continually yeah. is is awesome. Yeah. And so I wanted to give you now an opportunity to talk about something amazing from your world. <laughs> something amazing from my world. Yeah. Um, well, I would, I, I would definitely, I would concur. Seeing progress, yeah. there's nothing like it. Yeah. Um, I think from my world right now, I'm excited in the state of Iowa. Um, we had legislation last year that established a dyslexia task force. Yeah. And the task force worked hard all year long to get recognition recommendations back to legislation that our legislators are going to now be um, looking at and voting on. There's a bill, a study bill has been established. Um, those things moving forward are going to start to really lay some groundwork for educators to be able to do amazing things. Okay. And like you said, if, if you get these things implemented, it's not if we will make a difference, it's when. Yeah. And that's a, that's, you know, an amazing thing. We unfortunately, as a as a race, as a country, I guess I would say, we've gotten accustomed to proficiency rates that are like in the 40th percentile. Yeah. Why is that okay that kids are only proficient in half of their native language? Right. And so really getting stuff in place to start to change the assumptions. We should be we should be shooting for mastery for all kids. Why have we decided to settle for anything less? Yeah. So it's exciting stuff. It'll be fun to see it roll out. Yeah, I, I can <laughs> only imagine. Well, I wanted to thank you again yeah. for being on this episode Great. of the Amazing Education Podcast. So for everyone listening, we hope you like what you heard today, and we hope that you're willing to share it. Um, we are on iTunes, Google Play, and, you know, we videotape this, so you can find us yeah. on YouTube as well. So yeah, again, thank you so much. Nina, thank you very much. Yeah.